When I was in third grade, I made a really stupid, stupid mistake at school. I made a really bad decision, and I got caught. I don't need to tell you what it is. That's not necessary. (laughs) But it was bad. And I got called to the principal's office. I remember Mrs. Mercer, and she had her hair all the way up here and was looking at me and she's saying, why? Why did you do it? And I didn't have a good answer. And she told me, I'm going to call your parents and you'll have to explain to them what happened. I was terrified to go home after school that day. It wasn't a long walk. It should only take about 10 minutes. I think it took me about 45 minutes to walk home. And I remember coming up to the door and it was just the screen door was, was closed, but it was locked. And so then I had to ring the doorbell for my mom to come and let me into the house. And I, my, not, my stomach was tied up in knots. I didn't want it to be opened. And she came to the door. She said, hi, honey, how was your day? And I didn't have a poker face. She said, what's wrong? Mrs. Mercer knew it would be better for me to confess my sin before my mother. She didn't call until 6 o'clock that night. So I had to spill my guts, as it were. I was so terrified of the repercussions of what would happen afterward, but it was so freeing afterward. My parents were, they were very unhappy. I was grounded for two weeks. It's the only time in my life I've been grounded. I should have been grounded other times, but that was the only time. But there was something about that that was freeing. I was fearful, I was ashamed, but I was still loved. I was punished rightfully by my parents, but it was out of love. They wanted the very best for me. And so as you're thinking about this, and you're maybe drawing a picture about a time where maybe you've had a similar instance where you weren't in your right mind, think about how maybe you grew out of that. So here we are. In Isaiah, the week before Holy Week, and there's some things for us to contemplate, and so for all the history geeks, I'm going to give you a little bit of background and where we are in Isaiah. Isaiah uh, is, uh, is the book that contains the prophecies of Isaiah. I'm sure that's a shock to you. Now, Isaiah was the son of Amos, uh, and he ministered about 740 through 680 B.C., Remember, this is before Christ, so we're going backward in time. Uh, For about 20 years, he spoke to both the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And after Israel's fall to the Assyrians in 722 BC, Isaiah continued to prophesy to Judah and to Israel. This period in Israel's history, they had, uh, this is founded in uh, 2 Kings, specifically in uh, chapters 15 through 21, and also in 2 Chronicles 26 through 33, if you care to to read about this more. Isaiah was a contemporary of the prophets Hosea and Micah. By the time that Isaiah came along, the prophets of Elijah, Elisha, Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, and Amos, they'd already finished their ministries. So to, to give you a little idea of the context of when this was written. Well, by the time that this had been written, the Israelites had been in the Promised Land for 700 years. And for the first 400 years, they had judges in Canaan. They ruled Israel. 
And these were the spiritual leaders, the military leaders, the political leaders uh, whom God had chosen and appointed. And then, of course, after that, we have kings. We have King Saul, we have King David, we have King Solomon. Israel had a civil war and remained divided. Two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it was at this time that Isaiah is writing to both kingdoms. It's interesting that Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. So when the New Testament writers are referring to the Old Testament, often it's Isaiah. Jesus also referred back to Isaiah. So specific to today's text in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, you can find them written about in uh, Matthew 13 and Mark 4 and Luke 8 for today's readings. And then also John refers to them in John 12, as well as the Apostle Paul talks about it in Acts 28. So this is an important area that we're looking at, uh, this, this uh, text from Isaiah. So the first six chapters of Isaiah, they set the tone. And it's written to the Israelites, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, because they had proven not to be the light of God to the world that God had appointed them to be. They had failed miserably. They were supposed to witness to the promises of God and, and to be able to have their identity and their purpose and their very life, uh, their redemption founded in God. But they again, they failed miserably at this. And so God appointed Isaiah to remind them of whom they are and whose they are. Chapter 6, which is where we're going to spend most of our time today, that's talking about a very important concept of remnant. Remnant is what God preserves to continue his kingdom work. And it becomes the focal point for God's promises. Uh, eventually, the remnant is identified in the messianic promise, of course, who we know as Jesus Christ. He is the anointed one of whom Isaiah speaks as well. The anointed one will suffer for our sins. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the man of sorrows. It's a perfect setup for what we're looking at when we enter the Passion Week. Palm Sunday, he, he enters Jerusalem with great accolades with the palms, but it's also Passion Sunday because he's headed toward his death on a cross. Isaiah reminds us that God's people are meant to reflect God's light and reflect God's heart and the promise that we know in God. Engrafted into the Messiah and by the deliverance that only he can bring, we are God's people. We are privileged to be his people, and we've been liberated by the love of God and liberated to love God and to love our neighbors, whether they're near or far, and finally becoming that light of nations that God intended us to be. So there are, are four specific things I want you to keep in mind as we're, as we're going through this sermon today. First and foremost, and this is really important to hear, acknowledgement of God's holiness inherently points to your own sin and your need for his grace, love, and mercy. Let me say that again. In order to acknowledge God as holy, 
inherently has to point to your own sin and your need for God's love, grace, and mercy. Secondly, in our own witness to the Lord and our proclamation to his mercy, we have to first proclaim, woe is me, poor miserable sinner that I am. Thirdly, it's from this place of genuine humility that confirms for you that we do have eyes. And like Isaiah said, to have and seen the king, the Lord of hosts. We have to have that humility before we can see that God is who he says that he is. And lastly, fourthly, uh, in this comes the understanding that you and I cannot begin, and this is important, we cannot begin to spiritually and emotionally serve other people and meet them where they are in their walk with Christ until we ourselves recognize and confess our own need and our own dependence on God for all things. You can't serve others unless you're willing to be served yourself. And it's no different if you've been through, through a recovery program, whether it's 12 steps or, or whatever it is, you have to recognize that you need God in order to, to, to be able to serve other people. You can't walk along other side, alongside other people who are in the same position that you are until you yourself are walking in that same position of humility. So let's get into the text. So Isaiah, he came about, his ministry came about after the 52-year reign of King Uzziah. King Uzziah died of leprosy in 739 B.C. It was the same year, and you can read about this in 2 Chronicles 26. It's the same year that Isaiah began his ministry, his prophetic ministry. It's in this vision that Isaiah shares with us, he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The Lord had a message to deliver to the nation of Judah, and he appointed Isaiah. He knew that Isaiah would be the one to express that. And so he expressed his desire for a messenger in verse 8, and Isaiah's exclamation was, Here I am. Take me. I'll go. It marked the very beginning of his ministry. He went from being a, a priest to now being a, a prophet and a valuable prophet. Uh, he's akin to our Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Isaiah is speaking truth, and he's encouraging, and he's reminding people of who they are in God. But before Isaiah could say, here I am, choose me, he had a big, big problem that he couldn't fix himself. He describes that he saw himself as being completely unworthy. He said, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He recognized his own depravity, but because he recognized that, he then could see that God is worthy. God is the king. It's that position of humility, and that opened his heart and allowed God to, to work in, around, and through him. And so he's standing in the Lord's presence, and Isaiah is made painfully aware of his sin, and he's broken. And the same way that we find Job is broken, the same way that we find Peter is broken in, in Luke 5, they were confronted by the presence of God. But God was preparing them 
and preparing Isaiah for, for cleansing him and then commissioning him, sending him out. And so Isaiah acknowledged his sin. And then this is the painful part of acknowledging your sin. The seraphim took a hot coal from the altar and placed it on his lips. And we see that, that vision, that, that image, and we think, oh my goodness. And you can't help but feel the pain. But it's really no different than when we have to confront our own sin. It may not be that physical burning pain, but anytime you confront your sin and you're seeking to move from, from turning away from God to, to turning to the light and turning toward God, repenting, it can be really painful. And it hurts emotionally, physically, certainly spiritually. But the seraphim said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and you are atoned for. It's the same promise that you and I receive in Jesus Christ. It's no less painful. But it's the same joy, that same resurrection that we look forward to and that we celebrate on Easter, that removal of sin frees you, that confession of sin frees you to move on and to do what God planned for you all along. There's an important detail here. Isaiah could not do this for himself. You and I know that as Christians. But in, in his world, it was all about works. It's by what you do or don't do. It's what you sacrifice or don't sacrifice and what you do with all the parts. But Isaiah couldn't do any of that. He couldn't help himself. It was done for him and only by the grace, love, and mercy of God. It had to come from the throne room of God. It had to be appointed. God declaring Isaiah holy and acceptable to him to do his work. And it's the same for you and for me through Jesus Christ. It's only after Isaiah is cleansed from his sin that he can finally say and stand up and say, Here I am, send me. Prior to that point, he was unworthy. He was not on the right mind. And then God said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Did you catch that? Who will go for us? It's a nod to the Trinity in the beginning. Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, take me. God made the invitation to a willing volunteer, and Isaiah was enthusiastic. He was grateful. He was looking forward to it. But then we have what we, what was, uh, what we read together in Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 9. So here is the willing servant to go out and uh, to preach the gospel and to set the people right and knowing that God is going to be with him and strengthening him, and God lays this on him. Go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then Isaiah said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and land is desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains. 
when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Not very encouraging. You said yes to the Lord, and, and, and he's, he's laying this on him. But this is this idea of remnant, what's left over. And it doesn't sit well with us. We don't want to be part of a remnant. We want to be part of something that's alive and thriving and growing. This whole idea of church growth. But God refines us. So what are the implications of this message from God to you and me here in the 21st century? Well, there are many. I think some of us feel like a remnant after this whole COVID business, and we're still dealing with the, the repercussions and the after effects of that. But it's been a rough couple of years. Now there's war overseas with threats. Who will remain? Who will survive? What will God do with this? It's part of the biblical narrative, and it happens over and over again. This is nothing new. It's new for you and me and our generation, but it's nothing new for God, and it's nothing that he will not overcome. Noah and his family were the only remnant remaining from the destruction in the entire planet. Yet God's will was done. Only Lot and his two daughters survived the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God's will was done. The Apostle Paul in Romans 11, had 1 Kings 19 in mind when he wrote, and I quote, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? Says Paul. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And so we walk as yet by faith knowing the promises of God will be fulfilled in his good timing and according to his will. But this idea of remnant can be frightening to us. But God tells us over and over again, do not fear good people, good remnant. Zechariah 13, Awake, O sword, Again, my shepherd, again, the man who stands next to me declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So how does it feel to be the remnant? It confronts us more and more in these modern times. Man, that makes me sound old. <laughs> but it does. We keep getting more and more pushback in our culture, don't we? Media certainly doesn't help with that. Media doesn't represent reality. 
but we can't help but see it all the time. And it, and it implants this idea of, of failure in our minds. But we cling to this identity that you are the remnant. You are carrying the imprint of God in you wherever you go. No matter what happens, no matter what destruction may befall you, each of us have felt utter destruction in our lives. We have, we have been at the end of ourselves wondering, I can't go any farther but by God. On Tuesday, I get on an airplane and I fly to Slovakia and I'm going to go to the Ukraine border. Not into Ukraine, my board won't let me do that, but I get the privilege of walking alongside the remnant who are ministering to Ukrainian refugees. I get to, to help assess what their needs are. That's my official position going there because we've been blessed. Oh my goodness, we've been blessed with a huge number of donations. And we get to, to figure out how we can strengthen those who are reaching out to the remnant of the Ukraine war. And I'm constantly inspired we, we get to have daily conversations with pastors and ministry workers on the ground in Ukraine and then in all the surrounding countries where we work. And so I'm going to focus on Slovakia. That's where we have some really amazing, thing happen, amazing things happening. But there are still people in Ukraine. All the pastors that we work with in Ukraine may not leave because they're all under the age of 60 years old. They're eligible for conscription to defend their country. They've all had to drive their wives and their children to the border and say goodbye, not knowing they'll see them again. But they continue to do the work. And while in the church, we're usually focused on, on, on bringing people up in Christ and discipling people, and that's what we should be doing, we're also preparing for a time such as this. It's not about social ministry. It's about the, the light and the love and the mercy of God working in, around, and through us and this whole body of Christ, of, of, of part of which we are. And so I had the privilege of knowing these incredible workers in ministry. One of them is the bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Ukraine. His name is Pavlo Schwartz. He's about this tall. He's a little overweight. He loves food, but he is always joyful and he has been through so much. Uh, he and his family lived in Kharkov. And if you've seen the news, Kharkov is one of the cities that's really being pummeled by the Russians. Uh, they finally had to leave Kharkov uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, but they're still in Ukraine. His, his wife and children are not. But Pavlo is. And he's in the northeastern region uh, in Lutsk. And if you think about Ukraine being the size of Texas, it's about where you'd find Amarillo. So that's where he is. But on a regular basis, he's driving provisions back into Kharkov and then bringing people back with him into safety. This is the bishop of the church. Last week, he posted something really great, very inspiring. And uh, so this was, he posted this on Facebook. First, he quotes from John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Then Pablo writes, 
During the time of war, the faith of many Christians goes through a serious crisis. This happens because Christians live their life in a context of culture. And our modern culture is concentrated on enjoying yourself and escaping suffering and discomfort. The war destroys the world we all know and we are used to. It exposes human suffering in such a way that it is not an abstract notion, but something very familiar. The war takes away many of the things that we were used to and, the th and that we thought them to be timeless and unchanging. It separates us from those with whom we are closest. The war is shocking, and it makes you distrust the reality. You want to believe that it's just a bad dream, a nightmare that will soon end. A Christian that has witnessed and in some sense took part in this war has an uneasy or a difficult choice to make. So you have this choice. You could hide behind the hyper-spirituality and repeat, all is as God wills it, or other godly formulas like a mantra. You could enter an apocalyptic mood and wait for the end of the world. You could loudly call everyone except their self to repentance and give wise explanations. What did the Lord punish us all for? And this is translated from Russian, so it's a little dicey. Hold fast, you could hold fast to being spiritually apolitical, for our citizenship is in heaven, and so on. You could separate yourself. Then he continues to write, or you could make this choice. Accept reality as it is, with its sufferings, pain, and grief. Acknowledge your fears before God and your own self. Not to have any fear is insanity rather than courage. Learn how to listen, cry, and even be silent with those who live through grief. See others who are next to you, where you can give fellowship and encouragement, as well as those whom you can serve, feed, listen, help, evacuate, protect, and so on. And probably most important, rediscover the one who overcame the world and death. Find your stronghold in Christ and help others to do just that, especially those who have lost all hope. Pretty inspiring. The Apostle Peter on Pentecost preached, repent, and be baptized. And he quoted extensively from the Old Testament for that first sermon of his. If you think about it, Peter was speaking to the descendants of the remnant that Isaiah was originally called by God to preach. People are so fickle. Angela and I, during our, uh, our devotion time, and I may have shared this with you before, but we were reading through Exodus, and we were thinking, those Israelites, I mean, how stupid can you be? God just got them out of Egypt, and, and he's given them all these things, but they keep forgetting, they keep turning away from them. They're making golden caps, they're complaining, they're whining, yet God always provides it. What's with these people? Then we looked at each other, and we laughed. Said they're no different than you and me. We keep forgetting. 
Our identity keeps getting lost in the ways of this world when there's only one identity, and that's as children of God. So our ministry has been prepared for a time such as this. And it's interesting. It's been opined that the, the war in Ukraine has suddenly brought all the nations together again. Well, most nations. We finally have a common enemy once again. Russia, or Mr. Putin specifically. But that's worldly. Uh, this is definitely spiritual warfare. And so while we feel united as people, we need to remember where our strength comes from. And so this is a golden opportunity for each of us, not just those who are serving overseas, but here right now. People are turning back to God because nothing else is working. So you and I have that opportunity to speak life and joy and grace and mercy into their lives. This is your opportunity as the remnant to say, that is God. What you see on TV, that is not God. And in our ministry, we've spent 30 years making relationships and being part of the body of Christ. We have people all over Eastern and Central Europe, and, and we're all working together to minister to the people of Ukraine. That wouldn't have worked as well if we didn't know each other, if we didn't recognize that we're all part of the same body, the same body of Christ. It's, again, an opportunity. It's, it's social ministry right now, but, but that it's necessary. And as people are being fed and, and, and given shelter and given a safe place, we can then begin lifting them up and drawing them back to God, pointing them to Christ, helping them to recognize that they're children of God, they're part of the remnant just like you and me, that there is hope despite the incredible destruction they found in their own country. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't invite you to join us at some point. We're taking teams this summer. We're taking two teams to Slovakia. We already know we'll have Ukrainian students in our camps this year in Slovakia. We're preparing our teams for children who are going to be traumatized. But it's an opportunity. The same opportunities are right outside these walls. People are traumatized. They need to know that there's hope, that there's love, that there's grace. But the only way that we can begin to say, here I am, choose me, is through our own humility and recognizing our own weaknesses and that we're nothing without God. And so that begins with, woe is me, a poor miserable sinner, completely depraved. God help me, forgive me, renew me. Only then can we say, there's the king, the Lord of hosts. And so we say, take me, use me to God's glory. I don't know what I'll see next week, but I know it'll be inspiring. I covet your prayers. But most importantly, we cover the prayers that this golden opportunity that we have at the people of Christ, that his kingdom will abound and will give the media something really to talk about. That the church is alive. God's people are alive and well and thriving. To him be the glory. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, we cannot begin to fathom 
what are your plans? We know how your word ends. Yet the calamities that surround us, distract us. Father, may we cling to you and our identity in you and your promises, knowing that your will be done no matter what, and that you love us and strengthen us and encourage us and send us. Father, may we seek your will in all things, and may we be encouraged in that, and may we truly rejoice on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter, that our hope is always in you. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.